Global based in our Boston office. I am joined by George Magnus and Mark Astley, who will be leading the discussion. And to give brief bios, uh, George is an independent economist and commentator and research associate at the China Center at Oxford University and at the School of Oriental and African Studies, London. He's a frequent contributor to the Financial Times, Bloomberg, the BBC, among other outlets. Uh, previously, George was the chief economist and a senior economic advisor at UBS from 1995 to 2016. And George's current book, Red Flags, Why Xi's China is in Jeopardy, is a timely exploration of China's economic and commercial challenges and aspirations to modernity within President Xi's regime. We are very pleased to have him here with us today to drill deeper into these and other topics related to the current geopolitical and macroeconomic order. He's joined by my colleague, Mark Astley, who is the co-CEO of Millennium Global. We are a $20 billion currency specialist asset manager founded in 1994, providing solutions to institutional investors globally. And we've been awarded the currency manager of the year for the past three years running. Mark has been with the firm for 20 years now, since 2002. Previously, he spent many years as a portfolio manager at Schroeder's in London, New York, and Hong Kong. Most recently, he's authored a book entitled A Comprehensive Guide to Currency Issues for Institutional Investors, which is available in six different versions for investors domiciled in the US, UK, EU, Switzerland, Japan, and Australia, respectively. So wherever you're sitting right now, we have you covered. And with that, I will hand it over to Mark and George. I mean, thank you very much indeed. Certainly, as the Chinese curse says, uh, we live in interesting times. And um, perhaps as the irony behind that phrase is such uh, too interesting, given that uh, we've had a calamitous start to 2022 with the Russian war in Ukraine. But let's start with China. And um, I'll construct a canvas on which, George, you can paint the picture as you see it in geopolitical and geostrategic terms of China. Interestingly, it's 50 years last month that President Richard Nixon went to China uh, in the beginning of what was the opening up of relations between the United States and China from that trip in February 1972. Four years later, we had the premiership of Deng Xiaoping and the beginning of the economic revolution, perhaps the economic miracle in China, with his so-called socialism with Chinese characteristics. Uh, in 2000, we had China acceding to the World Trade Organization. And of course, that was very much around integrating China to the global economy. And at that time, there was a belief that there would be economic gains by dint of that accession. But also, there was the belief that there would be political reform hand in hand. And of course, that's never happened. And arguably, China is more autocratic today than at any time, perhaps since the 1960s. If we bring ourselves up to date, of course, we have a change in the relationship between China and Russia. Post-World War II, they were mortal enemies under Stalin and Mao. And today, President Xi assures us that they are the best of friends. So given all of that, where do you see China geostrategically? And is that relationship with Russia sustainable? And where do you think China affects geopolitics for the next five or 10 years? Well, that's an easy question to start with. I think it's kind of interesting as we uh, just briefly uh, kind of reflect back a little bit. Uh, even before Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, China had started to become a little bit more truculent um, in its uh, foreign policy and in, in its international relations. 
principally within Asia and uh, with some of its Asian neighbours about islands, bases, what turned out to be bases, obviously, in the South and East China Seas. But of course, that really was the hors d'oeuvre, really, because actually after Xi Jinping came to power, um, China was certainly um, minded, A, uh, or wanted to remind itself and, and others about its own economic heft, because by this time, China was already, you know, the, the world's second biggest economy measured in uh, market US dollar terms. But also, the Chinese government actually took some sort of lesson from the financial crisis in 2008 that the United States and the Western system basically was in mortal decline. Um, and that's kind of remained the view of uh, China since then. So when we look at you know, China's rapprochement with uh, Russia, um, when I say rapprochement, it's not that they'd ever fallen out, but there's actually, I mean, not recently, but they had, there's always been a distrust uh, between them, um, both about uh, geography, about uh, influence in Central Asia, about uh, Chinese commercial influence in the Russian Far East and so on. But actually, they have been getting closer. Um, in fact, when uh, Putin went to Beijing at the start of the Winter Olympics for this um, summit meeting, which resulted in the 5,500 word statement of, you know, the world is safe for autocracy, this was the 38th meeting which Xi Jinping had had with Putin since uh, Xi Jinping had come to power. I think that certainly with Russia, China certainly sees its time. Uh, I mean, it does think that the West and the United States are in decline. It does think that this is their moment to stand up to and challenge uh, the influence of uh, the United States. Um, unlike Russia, I think that China does not want necessarily to indulge in sort of land grabs and upset or revolutionize, you know, the global system. I mean, China wants to work the global system and dominate it. And so that's a, a different agenda. I think that China sees the Putin's war in Ukraine. I don't think they care that much about the Ukraine, but they do see what matters to them is that they should be on the right, what they would regard as the right side of history uh, of, of being in a position where the United States is humiliated or suffers a defeat and not Putin. So is autocracy versus democracy kind of an overcation? Possibly because in our search for allies and um, friends we you know we reach out to countries that aren't necessarily the kind of democracies that we that we think of as ourselves to be like um, Egypt for example or um, countries in the Middle East like Saudi or even India and Turkey and by the same token you know there are a lot of countries that actually are concerned about lots of aspects of China but cannot really afford to dispense with the significance of China economically and commercially. So it, it's a slightly lazy trope, but it's probably what most people think is going on. It's often been said that China is very canny operator sort of in diplomatic circles, but it seems to have achieved the unenvious um, position where it's made a lot of enemies, not just in the West, but in the Pacific Rim. And to that extent, it's somewhat weakened. How, how do you think about that in, in, in a big picture? I mean, I think that, you know, as 
we all know that China is a big place, you know, $17 trillion economy, very capable of doing lots of, you know, incredibly smart stuff, center of global supply chains for the time being, at least, et cetera, et cetera. But in foreign policy, I think China has committed a whole catalog of error. So they, Deng Xiaoping, who you know, is credited obviously with bringing China out of the Stone Age into becoming a kind of a more modern economy and, and society, had a mantra uh, really about, um, I mean, it was roughly translated as hiding your strength and biding your time, which basically China abandoned in the years after the financial crisis, but certainly left, basically threw away completely under Xi Jinping. And since then, you know, we've not only had sort of aggressive pursuit of China's interests in the South China Sea, we've had this sort of episode in the Himalayas where they basically took up, well, I say arms, but it was more like sort of stones and cudgels against Indian troops. Uh, the wolf warrior diplomacy that everybody's familiar with um, that took place in the wake of COVID, the pushback which the United States has certainly been keen to prosecute or support uh, against China in the form of the Quad, which is Australia, United States, India, and Japan. Also, AUKUS, the um, peculiar named, you know, sort of alliance with the United States, uh, United Kingdom, Australia, for the Americans and the Brits to uh, give nuclear-powered uh, submarine technology to the Aussies. Obviously, China's own actions in Hong Kong, its uh, bullying of Taiwan, and of course, its uh, underestimation of the sort of pushback, really, from the US and EU. I mean, all of these things actually speak to, I think, hubris in a way. So I, I think it's kind of an interesting, we're at an interesting juncture, obviously, where, you know, I mean, talk about new world order. I mean, it's more like new world disorder at the moment. But something from, you know, as these kaleidoscope pieces, which are up in the air, eventually begin to settle, I think we, you know, we are going to see a lot more pushback against China and against the sort of notion that the China that China has about itself being at the center of a kind of a global hierarchy um, in which you know it expects other countries to kind of kowtow to use a kind of an imperial expression to its wishes and to its interests in the world some will go along with that um, to be sure um, but I think a lot of other countries will be quite resistant. It's clear that great geopolitical power comes from great economic and or military power. And of course, China has both. Let's switch gears and focus on the economy. And you've written extensively, and in particular with your 2018 book, Red Flags, about Chinese economic vulnerabilities. Perhaps you can share some thoughts today about where you think the economy stands after the problems of the real estate sector and, and other issues uh, and where you think it might be going. Yeah, well, Again, uh, I need to be quite brief about this because, uh, you know, it's something that we could spend a long time talking about. But I think, you know, that, China, that 2022 is building up to be a bit of a perfect storm for the Chinese uh, economy. So the first thing is Omicron, right? I mean, I mean, a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about pre-existed the war. So um, in, in some respects, the war has been a catalyst, uh, an accelerant, I should say, uh, for some of these things that are going on. So Omicron, as we know, is a bit of a problem in terms of its transmissibility. Shanghai, as everybody knows now, is being has been shut down in you know the east and west side of the city, um, and um, it's uh, quite quite serious. I think uh, the threat now that Omicron poses. If if Hong Kong's prevalence 
uh, of Omicron were repeated in China, um, I mean, the economy would be uh, would be hit for six. There's no question about that. And as it is, you know, you find half a dozen cases. I mean, I exaggerate for the sake of effect. You find a half a dozen cases in an apartment block or in a kind of a, a large area of city and the whole city shuts down for mass testing. So the, the problem that China has with Omicron is the vaccines aren't necessarily good enough or certainly not good as good as the mrna vaccines they so far will not import pfizer and moderna a large proportion of the older generation have not vaccinated uh, at all let alone boosted and um yeah the service industries and hospitality leisure transportation sectors uh, are very vulnerable uh, as is the population to uh, the transmissibility of omicron so um i, I think there's next to no chance that they will uh, relax this policy before the party congress and even in 2023 depending on what happens in the health se healthcare sector um and hospitals uh, it could be you know the closed borders will will linger for quite some time property is the second big problem uh, property defined as real estate investment housing services like managing renting um and uh, also the kind of consumer cyclicals that go into new uh, apartment buildings and new houses. So this is, um, I mean, they reckoned it was 29% of GDP for China. Uh, some people have thought there's a little bit of double counting in there, um, but even if it's only 22 or 23% of GDP, it's still an enormous amount of the economy that needs to be replaced. And the fundamentals aren't that great. So in the first two, three months of this year, Housing sales have picked up a bit and um, property developers have gotten rid of uh, some of their excess um, and underwater estates, basically, to state enterprises. So it's not quite as bad now as it was in the fourth quarter of 2021. But the fundamentals going forward are, uh, are all pretty poor. Uh, productivity is another big problem for China. Again, it's not necessarily a problem for 2022 productivity growth or what we call in the nerdy world of economics total factor productivity, which is the, the magic bit of the economy that um, uh, makes the best use through good institutions of labor inputs, capital inputs, and technology inputs. Business capital growth, which have, we know that that took off in the 2000s and the 2010s, the total factor productivity numbers um, you know, don't look very likely to improve, um, largely because, uh, in my view, the, the government is following a kind of a governance system, particularly with regards to incentives, enterprise, institutions, which is not conducive to a recovery of, um, of total factor productivity. Um, other things which obviously are pinging on the Chinese economy this year, employment is becoming a problem. Some of you may have seen that Tencent, Alibaba, ByteDance, MyTuan have all announced uh, layoffs of between 10 and 15% of employees. Um, these are tech platform, uh, data platform companies um, where lots of young people are going to be laid off. This is not a good, uh, good omen for, for China in 2022, especially given the sensitivity of the government to employment. Uh, the impact of higher inflation in China pursuant to commodity prices, food prices going up because of the war, will take about 1% of China's GDP this year. Uh, and then, of course, if China were to suffer more uh, kind of sanctions or uh, 
it were to um, accelerate its own de, you know, uh, sort of self-reliance, basically, trying to remove itself from American influence and Western influence, this kind of disengagement of the Chinese economy will uh, will exacerbate a cost as well. So lots of things are weighing against the achievement of China's growth. I mean, China's growth target for this year, just recently announced, is 5.5%. They'll hit the target, as they always do, but only by manipulating the statistics. Um, my reading of all the documents that were just published earlier this month for the National People's Congress is that the government is privately much less optimistic about growth this year than you can read in print. Interesting. Let's zoom out for a second and put that all into the context of uh, a major theme that's been discussed in recent years, which is globalization. If we put it in the context of these three eras, um, obviously the Cold War ended in 1989, the Berlin Wall came down, um, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, China entering the WTO and so on. Where do we move towards democracy versus autocracy? Whether that's the right way to think about things. Well, perhaps 2016, uh, when the trades back with the US and China commenced. Um, and there's been some analysis around to what extent globalization has been a theme for the last couple of generations. And there's the, the Swiss Economic Institute that does the COF Globalization Index, looking at economic, social, and political indicators, both in terms of policy, in terms of outcome. It's very evident that um, after the end of the Cold War, globalization got a massive boost. The question now is to what extent not only might it be plateauing, but might it be receding on the basis that uh, global supply chain vulnerabilities are seen in national security terms, and therefore uh, there's a rethink around uh, these issues. Clearly that's been um, particularly in focus now, given uh, the war in Russia and Ukraine, uh, Germany's uh, energy supplies, Italy's, and so on. Uh, how do you think globalization is, is going to evolve in the next five or 10 years? Well, um, we sometimes think that uh, we are all so interdependent in terms of technology and trade and investment and so on, that it is impossible to unravel um, that interdependence, that element of globalization. Um, I don't think we should be so blasé as to think that it's impossible. It's happened before in 1914 when a previous generation also thought it was impossible. And politics and obviously conflict can uh, undo these things pretty, pretty quickly. But short of conflict, and obviously we can see in the case of Russia, the conflict, catch, you know, I think 450 companies have left Russia. Um, you know, Russia is going to be a pariah. Nobody's, you know, it's going to be very difficult for it to, to do anything in the global uh, system. Um, so we know it can happen. It, it will happen. But the, the, you know, the 64 trillion yuan question really is whether it's going to happen to China. And um, I think that um, the Chinese will be very, I'm pretty sure they're, they're very conscious about this. Everybody would be a loser. Um, but I do think that, you know, at the risk of being overly simplistic, if you're selling lattes in China or basically importing Chinese consumer products like TVs or whatever, I'm pretty sure that those companies or those <coughs> sectors, you know, won't have, um, you know, will not be in the crosshairs of people's attention. But the closer you get up the kind of the chain towards national security, technology, data management and uh, ownership and manipulation and prevalence, uh, innovation and research, 
um, food security, energy security. These things will all, I think, be under the heaviest of scrutiny um, by regulators and lawmakers uh, on, on both sides, really, in the future. I think that globalization, probably some version of globalization will persist, but it'll be sort of globalization with its back against the wall. Mm -hmm. um, so I think integration, basically, I think is going to be a casualty of this in certain sectors in particular, uh, technology and data and finance, perhaps specifically. And very largely, that appears to have begun already, doesn't it? Yeah. The other big theme that we must touch upon, I think, is demographics. And that's another strategic, secular, multi-generational theme. And um, there's a number of facets to it. Certainly in the Western world, it revolves around the baby boom generation to a large extent, coming into the workforce and now on the cusp of retiring in many senses. We've also got in China the consequence of the one-child policy coming and going. And it's remarkable when you look at the big picture, how that's going to impact the working age population uh, in the West and in, in China. Perhaps Japan is a little bit ahead of all of us because it's already aging pretty rapidly now. But what are your thoughts about um, demographics as it, apply, as it applies to all the topics we're, we're touching upon? Yeah, and this is a monster as well, but it's a sort of a glacial monster, right? Because it's it sort of evolves incrementally rather than with great fanfare from kind of one quarter to the next. The working age population, it actually peaked in 2012, and uh, it's going to drop for the foreseeable future. Uh, in fact, the United Nations Population Division estimates now go out to 2100. And, um, uh, and as far as we know, in terms of you know, fertility, longevity, and so on, um, the, this decline will continue for the foreseeable future. It, it's going to sort of pick up to a, a rate of about a 1% drop per annum in working age population. Uh, and unlike countries like, uh, for example, Korea or Taiwan or Singapore or Japan, when they had China's income per capita today, they were able to look forward to another 20 to 25 years of rising working age population. But China is in this position basically because of the family policies that were introduced in the 1970s. Um, the one-child policy, I don't think, actually had, had, it had its major impact, in my view, on gender imbalance, not really on fertility as such. Um, but in any event, the, the state's interference in the reproductive habits of its citizens actually has had terrible uh, legacy effect on China's labor force, yeah. And actually, for those people that are interested, obviously, in what's going on in the property market, if you think about the, uh, the, the age of prime or the prime age property purchases, age 25 to about 39, say, I mean, if you sort of have a reasonably broad uh, cohort there, um, this, this cohort of, of uh, people is going to drop by about 25% in the next 15 uh, to 20 years. So um, it's not the only thing that matters. You know, obviously you can, through inappropriate credit policies, you could also have another housing boom come back, you know, temporarily. But the, uh, the population fundamentals and the household formation fundamentals for China's real estate market look pretty bleak. It's interesting that at the time that we discussed these issues, if you go westwards and look at the United States, for example, to what extent, as a proportion of the whole population, 
are the dependent citizens, that is to say those between zero and 15 and those above 65, versus the working age population, that is to say between 15 and 65, is changing. And there's been a 40-year decline um, of the age-dependent ratio because of the baby boom generation going into the workforce and the proportion of the working age population growing. Uh, now that's clearly going to reverse and it's going to reverse for probably 40 years or so. And uh, one of the things that we've discussed, and perhaps we can touch upon it here, is to what extent that has been a major driver behind wage inflation declining um, and therefore coupled with the disinflationary forces we've seen in the world economy for 40 years. To the extent that the uh, amount of working age population is going to uh, decline, the price of labor will go up, or certainly the risks of that will be the case. Similarly, if you look in Europe, the working age population in the next 10 years in Germany, Italy, Spain in particular, but also France is going down in absolute terms, not just relative terms. And once again, to the extent that the economy is going to have to bid for those uh, smaller share of workers, arguably there's going to be an increase in, in the price of that. So to put that together with the globalization issue, wherein Globalization had a great benefit of adding something like 200 million people to the workforce out of Eastern Europe after the wall came down in 89, and another 200 million uh, Chinese workers uh, after WTO. Um, the benefits of that are all uh, baked in the cake, so to speak. Uh, we've had a 20 or 30 year period where the balance of power between capital and labor has all moved in favor of capital, wherein for the last 40 years, the profits, corporate profits before tax have gone from something like 6.5% to 12.5% on a secular basis, albeit with a great deal of cyclicality. Uh, and the question now becomes, to what extent is the power of labor rising, the cost of labor rising, and that going to have an impact on this picture itself in terms of profitability, but in particular, whether the big debate about inflation, which we now know is not transitory, may not simply be cyclical, but maybe systemic. So certainly the big uh, factors of reversal of globalization and demographics suggest that the risks are skewed. I think you can say that with some certainty. How they manifest with, is, a, is a living experiment, but there is a risk that there's a complete regime change in inflation from the, the marvelous benefits we've had in the last 40 years of disinflation and all that it's meant for asset prices to something quite different. But perhaps there's a few more things to say about that in the context. It's not just the reversal of the globalization and demographics, but um, ESG considerations in our industry and the world at large and climate change. To the extent that the world is focused on moving to net zero by 2050, we can debate whether that's achievable or not, but the direction of travel is clear. And in every case, whether it be industrial processes, changing the way steel, cement and aluminum are produced because of high energy, the transport sector, the agricultural sector, the electricity grid, uh, the mining of fossil fuels. All of these transitions which are going to take place are going to embed a higher cost structure in the global economy. And that's a structural or systemic phenomenon. So we have a situation where there are several structural reasons why inflation may become embedded in the global economy or the cost structure wherein the cyclical considerations we talk about currently of demand shock, supply shock, and excess monetary growth may morph into much more of a, of a, structural, a structural picture.
What are your thoughts about that as a, as a thesis for the next uh, generation or so? Yeah, I'm sort of by a lot of that, really. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think that um, the, I mean, obviously the geopolitics and demographics combined are sort of reinforcing one another here. Many people may remember Charles Goodhart, or he of Goodhart's Law, um, who's written a book um, with um, uh, co an Indian co-author whose name uh, escapes me, Brahan, I think his name is, um, that basically articulates quite well this idea that we're moving from, you know, sort of uh, excess labour, high returns to capital, um, to an era, the reverse, really, where capital returns will be uh, lower um, uh, and labour will be in short supply. And we're already seeing, you know, in many, many respects, of course, it's also been compounded, interestingly, by the pandemic. But uh, we're already seeing, um, I mean, a number of areas where there are skill shortages, if not outright labour shortages. But actually, the pandemic has kind of like a bolt out of the blue has exacerbated a lot of things because one of the things that you do, you know, in, in demography to try to compensate for this slump in fertility, is you try to increase the labor force participation of people who are typically underrepresented at work, which are older workers and women, mostly. Um, but a lot of older workers, um, we've seen this, you know, basically used the opportunity of the pandemic to basically just hang up their boots, really. Um, so, you know, everybody, certainly in the United Kingdom, but I think it happened in Europe and in the United States too. Um, there were all sorts of problems earlier this year about truck drivers and about delivery drivers um, uh, of articulated lorries. Um, the, basically, the, you know, people couldn't, you know, they, they just weren't there because they just stopped working. So typically, as we found out late, later, you know, these are people aged, 50, 55, or maybe a bit more, um, who, you know, want to be close to home. They didn't want to be caught, you know, with the risk of catching COVID, you know, 100 miles away or 1,000 miles away or whatever it happens to be. So you've got these labour uh, market churning going on, um, which is kind of reinforcing uh, what's going on in the in the demographics of the labor force as well. So I think that's that's a big issue. Um, so higher wages, higher costs, um, more regional, local supply chains, higher cost structures. Uh, I mean, all of these things I think will combine. Um, and obviously in the end, it's a question of, you know, whether companies take this in margins or whether, you know, they pass on prices to, to people and to consumers. Um, and it'll vary from sector to sector and country to country. Uh, but I think the, 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 the outcomes, I think, are as precisely as you've described. There was a very interesting uh, piece written about six months ago in the Journal of Portfolio Management asking the critical question as to how are financial assets going to perform, how have they performed in periods of rising inflation, which is something we really haven't had to confront for at least 20 years, perhaps longer. Mm. And some of the conclusions are perhaps obvious some less so. What they did is they took, um, as I say, the history of the last 100 years from 1925, and they identified that there were eight periods of rising inflation, broadly speaking, before World War II, after it in the mid-50s, the late 60s, the late 70s and early 80s. And there wasn't very much 
uh, in the 2000s, apart from perhaps a period just before the GFC. Uh, they called it the China boom of sort of 2007-8. Um, as you might imagine, if we have any sustained inflation, uh, duration does very poorly, it has significant consequences for uh, equity sector selection, where actually the one they identified uh, was consumer durables as the worst performing sector, if you take an average of, of that period. Equities overall, in nominal terms, uh, were flat. In real terms, the average was about minus 7%, of which 75% of the times equities uh, had a negative return. Other sectors that do particularly badly were identified as tech, although tech then was more about business investment as it was high tech, even though currently you might argue that many of the growth uh, projections for many of these tech companies are further out. So if you raise the discount rate, of course, the valuation or the, the net present value of those, uh, those returns are lower. Uh, and of course, we had a little bit of that in January 2020, when there's a significant underperformance as, as rates went up. Um, financials did poorly because you have higher non-performing loans, uh, obviously. And even investment grade credit uh, or high yield didn't compensate for the, the hit to, um, to, uh, on duration. The things that did very well uh, under that scenario were commodities, of course, uh, not just energy, but um, precious metals, uh, foodstuffs, even industrial commodities that did very well. Uh, residential real estate was somewhat of a insulator, but not, not completely. Collectibles have done very well and tips. But actually, there was quite an interesting insight around what alpha strategies have done well in times of inflation. And often trending strategies have done well in various asset classes, including foreign exchange, because it's a very different beast and having a, uh, a sort of alpha strategy and trending FX has done, has done quite well. So there's clearly going to be significant asset allocation consequences if we do get a sustainable increase in inflation. Certainly the value growth um, disparity that we've seen may reverse. Perhaps even the US performance compared to Europe and Japan may reverse. So I think to the extent that we can entertain the idea of inflation being with us for some considerable time or even a regime shift, it does have manifest consequences for everyone's asset allocation uh, for reasons reasons mentioned, but certainly that article was, was most interesting. The other thing to think about is what does it mean for currency? And in terms of currency markets, I, I would say that there are two dimensions to how inflation will impact uh, currencies. One as it relates to valuation and one as it relates to uh, cyclical dynamics. I mean, inflation is always and everywhere, as you know, bad for a currency because it, um, it hurts the trade competitiveness. There's only two things that are really key to competitiveness of a currency. It's relative inflation and relative productivity. And for any given level of productivity, inflation is always and everywhere bad. But this is a long-term perspective. And currencies don't trade at valuation. Uh, they trade rather like planets do around their associated star with uh, the gravitational force, depending on how the economic uh, cyclical factors are driven. So if we think of higher inflation being bad for a currency, it may not be the case that a currency will decline because it depends on the reaction function of the central bank, the monetary and fiscal authorities. If you take an example of the Volcker Fed and the Reagan administration of the early 80s, you had very high inflation in late 1979, it was something like 15% in the US, but actually the dollar had its biggest rally uh, in history from 81 to 85 because you had a very significant reaction by the Volcker Fed you had high real interest rates. At the same time, you had an easy fiscal policy because of the 
defense build up under the Star Wars uh, approach that the United States had against the Soviet Union at that time. Um, and so actually, cyclically, the dollar did very well. So inflation is double-edged. It really depends cyclically on the reaction function. And that's why one has to be, I think, proactive, active, and quite dynamic about managing currency risks, given that uh, overall cyclical dynamic. And it's really those two dimensions one needs to think about. If we consider the dollar today, it's quite noteworthy, I think, that we have a situation where we've already had expectations rising significantly in the last three months in terms of interest rates. We've had a hot war in Europe. And from the outset of the war on the 24th of February, the euro has fallen 4% high to low only. And as we sit here now, it's only about 1.5% lower than it was at the outset. And perhaps contextually, we're in a situation where the dollar is overvalued by some degree against most currencies, not, not, uh, not all. Uh, and we have had a rally from the lows, the really undervalued lows of 2008, of about 45% from low to high. And as we sit here 14 years on, about 38%. So there is a question mark about the, uh, the dollar's response. And arguably, Jerome Powell is not full Volcker. So we may not get the response uh, that uh, one might imagine uh, that is needed to uh, put rates to, uh, to positive in real terms again. Um, but I wonder what you think about, about how that affects the RMB in the context of uh, coming back to where we started, our thoughts on China. Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff um, going on at the moment about, you know, how the war really is a sort of a driver um, in China to make sure that they can't do that to us. And so, you know, to the extent that that might lead to an acceleration in the kind of de-Americanization of supply chains and also the de-dollarization of the Chinese financial system. Now, it's easy to say, because um, that rolls off the tongue quite, you know, quite nicely. But actually, it's much, much harder to do. And actually, the Chinese obviously do have an alternative to SWIFT, um, which they call the cross-international uh, payment system, something. SIPS is its kind of short form name. Um, uh, but actually, it's not really, you know, it's not nearly as big as SWIFT. It relies on SWIFT um, for messaging. Um, and uh, it's not even certain that um, even if China could get a number of countries, which it does, I mean, there are, it's not just kind of, um, uh, you know, Russian and other uh, banks in, in the Chinese system, but Australia's in there and a number of other countries are as well. Um, but I think, you know, the idea that China would want to have its alternative currency system, the yuan-based system, as a rival to the United States, yes, they want that to happen, I think. I just don't think it's very likely that it's going to happen on the way in the way that people imagine or that the Chinese want, for the very simple reason that you have to have a, a really widely used currency worldwide. You have to allow foreigners to build claims on you. And there are only two ways you can do that. One is through running large current account deficits in perpetuity. And the other is by having open capital movement out of the country. Neither of those things are going to happen in China under this regime or under this government. So I don't really lose a lot of sleep about the dollar losing out to the yuan. I mean, 
reserve currencies, one of the greatest things they have going for them is inertia. You know, something really awful has to happen uh, for reserve currencies to lose their reserve currency status. Um, and um, we haven't had that many. I mean, when you go back into the sort of medieval times, I'm not sure that we could compare, you know, Portugal and Spain with, or Holland with uh, the way the sterling and the dollar were many, many years later. But in any event, uh, yeah, I think um, I think that you know, obviously, people will be looking for alternatives. They want to hide their capital from the U.S. Treasury and the U.S authorities and they you know would like to be in a position where they won't be eligible to us sanctions i think it's going to be quite hard though maybe you know digital currencies will have some impact at the margin but actually you know fundamentally i think that uh, reserve currencies are basically about trust not technology and um, technology just makes payments easier but doesn't necessarily mean uh, that people trust the currency or the law underlying that currency that much more. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't appear as though there's any great threat to the US dollar, at least in the intermediate or even long term. I can't see in any particular medium term horizon that the dollar is going to lose, uh, lose its status. Uh, and I think it's fairly safe for now. I will wrap it up here. Uh, I want to thank both of our panelists, George and Mark, for the really interesting discussion today. I want to thank all of you for listening to us. We really hope that you found the uh, subject matter today engaging and relevant to what you're considering in, in your portfolios. Uh, these are definitely interesting times geopolitically and macroeconomically with uh, lots of pitfalls and uh, opportunities ahead, no doubt. So we very much look forward to continuing the dialogue with all of you. Thank you again. Thank you.